NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the Middle East as tensions surrounding the Israel-Hamas war threaten to engulf the region. And the death of a South Korean movie star has led to calls for reform. The general public is like heartbroken over this and they want changes to be made. And some Boeing 737 jets are grounded once again. We'll tell you why. Plus, what's old is new when it comes to music. Find out why decades old songs are topping the charts. And there's always the puzzle. It's Sunday, January 7th. News is next. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Palestinian health officials say an Israeli airstrike has killed at least six Palestinians in the West Bank. An Israeli police officer was also killed. Tensions have escalated in the West Bank since the start of the war in Gaza. Here's NPR's Kerry Khan reporting from Tel Aviv. According to Israel's military, its aircraft fired on Palestinian militants after a patrolling vehicle struck an explosive device, killing an Israeli border police officer. Palestinian officials say among those killed by the Israeli airstrike were four brothers. Dr. Wiesem Baker of the Janine Hospital says the dead arrived dismembered and difficult to ID, an unfortunate growing trend, he says, as Israel has increased use of aerial attacks in the West Bank. The casualties are in pieces. They collect the pieces from the ground. Janine is a stronghold of Palestinian armed resistance in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. The UN says more than 300 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since October 7th, when Hamas militants killed about 1,200 people in southern Israel. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is to meet with Persian Gulf leaders today. He's due in Doha in a couple of hours as part of his latest tour of the Middle East, the fourth in three months. He says he wants to keep the war in Gaza from spreading into a wider regional conflict. It is vital that we engage in this diplomacy now, both for uh, the sake of the future of Gaza itself and more broadly, the sake of the future for Israelis and Palestinians and for the region as a whole. There is clearly a strong desire among the majority of people in the region for a future that is one of peace. Blinken speaking there during a stop in Jordan earlier today as Israel's military says its focus is turning to southern Gaza. A loyalty oath from the 50s is a new flashpoint in the nation's presidential campaign. From member station WBEZ in Chicago, Dave McKinney reports. For decades, Illinois candidates voluntarily have signed the McCarthy-era oath not to overthrow the government. As a presidential candidate, Donald Trump did so in 2016 and 2020, but not this past week when filing for the state's March primary ballot. Former Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger says he's stumped. When I see that he didn't sign that, I wonder if there's legal questions, legal advice, or if he simply is just not committed to, after 2021, he's simply not committed to ensuring free and fair elections. Trump aides insist he'd defend the Constitution if elected. But President Joe Biden's campaign says Trump's unwillingness to publicly oppose a coup squares with his actions on January 6th. For NPR News, I'm Dave McKinney in Chicago. Arrests linked to January 6th are still being made. Three Florida residents are expected to be arraigned tomorrow after the FBI arrested them early yesterday. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Well, this is what's happening across the state. 
Plow in Worcester clearing snow. The first major storm of the season will be with us all day. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce has this update on what the storm is doing right now. Snow continues. The highest totals so far have been north and west of Boston, where we've had four to eight inches and some locally higher amounts. Pockets of damage and outages have been cropping up along and outside of 495. Now, we've changed back to snow in Boston, and the most intense band of snow right now is focused from Sudbury east to Winchester and Saugus with inch-per-hour rates under it. Meanwhile, there's a little low right now in central Mass and southern New Hampshire, and we're still mixing from time to time on the coast of Plymouth County and raining on Cape Cod. Still several hours to go with the back edge of the snow expected to move in 5 to 7 p.m. The National Weather Service says the town of Sterling in Worcester County has received the most snow so far, 9.1 inches. More than 11,000 households have lost power across the central and eastern parts of the state. Massachusetts Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says road conditions are mixed. Highways are generally in much better shape than uh, than secondary roads. We've, we've had crews out there pre-treating and then plowing uh, since since yesterday afternoon. So th- those those roadways are going to be in the best shape, but there are some areas where there's definitely some slippery conditions. Over at Logan Airport, 42 flights have been canceled and 18 have been delayed this morning. The MBTA expects service to operate on its regular Sunday schedule, and the commuter rail says it's deploying more than 1,000 snowblowers, salt trucks, plows, and other equipment to keep the tracks and stations clear. There's a report that Patriots coach Bill Belichick's future with the team still has not been decided. ESPN Patriots reporter Mike Reese says owner Robert Kraft and team president Jonathan Kraft have had a meeting with have a meeting with Belichick scheduled for tomorrow. This year's Patriots team has the worst record since Belichick became the head coach more than two decades ago. New England's final game this afternoon is in Foxborough against the Jets. The Bruins beat the Lightning last night over at the Garden, 7-3 the final score in that game. Celtics beat the Pacers. WBUR supporters include Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. From the start of the war between Hamas and Israel on October 7th, there have been concerns about a widening conflict in the region. But a series of attacks this past week point to intensifying tensions in several countries. Since Monday, Israeli airstrikes in Syria killed a top Iranian general, a U.S. strike killed an Iranian-backed militia leader in Iraq, and in Iran, bomb blasts killed at least 84 people. ISIS took responsibility for that. A senior Hamas leader was killed in Lebanon, although Israel hasn't claimed responsibility for that. The Iranian-backed Hezbollah group on Saturday fired roughly 60 rockets into Israel as a response to that killing. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the Middle East hoping to lower tensions. Faras Meksad is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and adjunct professor at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Aisha. Let's start with Lebanon. Hezbollah said Saturday's rockets were just the start of their response. 
are they signaling that they're ready to be more deeply drawn into the war between Israel and Hamas? There's been a lot of signaling back and forth across that Lebanon-Israel border, some of it through words, others through missiles. But I think what we can deduce is that Hezbollah very much wants to maintain the current status quo and avert an all-out war with Israel. The current status quo suits Hezbollah very well because they are reverting to asymmetric warfare, a gray zone warfare, some would say, where they can harass Israel across the border, show their support for Hamas and the Palestinians by forcing Israel to redeploy and refocus hundreds of thousands of troops away from Gaza to that northern border, but nonetheless stop short of an all-out war that might be in Israel's favor. Is Israel's strategy with Lebanon and Syria, and by extension, Iran, is that a provocation or is it a warning? The current status quo, while it suits Hezbollah and Iran, as I mentioned, does not suit the Israelis. The Israelis have about 75,000 to 80,000 citizens who've vacated the north for fear that Hezbollah, much more capable than Hamas, would do on to them what Hamas did in southern Israel. And they're not willing to come back unless that is settled. So Israel is demanding that Hezbollah pull its forces, at least its elite troops, away from that border, or else it's threatening war. So let's turn to that attack in Iran. It was carried out on the anniversary of the killing of a top Revolutionary Guard commander who was killed by the U.S. in Iraq in 2020. Attacks of this magnitude are rare in Iran, right? They are, in fact, rare. By some accounts, this is the largest attack in Iran since the 1979 revolution. The ISIS in Afghanistan has taken responsibility for that. What is important to note here in terms of the current confrontation between Israel and the U.S. on one hand and Iran and Hezbollah on the other is that even though ISIS did claim that, the Iranians still believe and have publicly blamed Israel for it and believe whoever carried out the attack must be a cutout on behalf of Israel, given the timing of the attack. So Iranian-backed groups are also active in Iraq, where they've been attacking U.S. installations off and on for years, and the U.S. periodically retaliates. Is there anything to the timing of this U.S. strike as tensions are so high in, in the region? I think what we're witnessing is a, a collapse of a detente and sort of unwritten understanding between the U.S. on one hand and Iran on the other, in which Iran essentially was warned and accepted to keep its enrichment of uranium below a certain threshold so that the U.S. is not forced into taking action. I think what we're witnessing increasingly so is that the war in Gaza and its reverberations throughout the region is causing that detente to come apart. And so unless there is a U.S. diplomacy and regional diplomacy kicks in to try and lower the temperature, there is now an increasing fear that we're going to see various conflicts across the region kind of metastasize into a broader regional war. With that being the case, you have the U.S. and Israel, their allies. Does it seem to you that their goals in the region might be diverging? Absolutely. What we're seeing 
is that now the Biden administration needs to think about the domestic ramifications for its almost unequivocal support for Israel. Biden is slipping in the polls in an election year. Uh, there's a lot of consternation about that support given the very significant civilian death toll in Gaza. But also we must say at a strategic level, the administration does not want to see a broader regional war that would suck it in back into the Middle East. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, has a very different calculus. He is looking at an investigation into his handling of the October 7 attack. His political career is on the line, and it seems that he just wants to continue fighting for now and resist talking about the day after. That's Firas Meksad, senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and adjunct professor at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Let's turn now to the border between Israel and Lebanon, where tensions are rising. It's the region where Israel and the Lebanese militia Hezbollah have been exchanging fire since the beginning of the war. NPR's Lauren Freyer is in northern Israel near the Lebanon border and joins us now. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Aisha. Thanks for having me. So, Lauren, where where exactly are you and, and what's the situation where you are? So I'm in northern Israel, about a mile from the Lebanon border. I'm actually sitting on the side of the road at an abandoned sort of strip mall. Um, Most of this area has been evacuated since just after October 7th. So I'm sitting in front of like a four-lane road that's basically empty. Um, We're hearing lots of warplanes overhead constantly and a few pretty big booms. No air raid sirens here so far today. Um, But in recent days, there have been lots um, and lots of cross-border rocket fire from Hezbollah and a lot of outgoing Israeli military strikes. A few businesses are open here. Um, There are probably as many soldiers as civilians on the roads. Um, Hezbollah hasn't done, you know, any ground invasion and neither has Israel yet. I've walked around some houses here with sort of holes in the side of them, but there are few injuries, thankfully, because like I said, most of this area has been evacuated. So, so this is an area where people evacuated three months ago and they haven't been back since? Yeah, so this is an area, you know, that is right on the border of Lebanon. And the fear here is kind of like what happened in the south with Hamas on October 7th, that militants, you know, crossed into Israel in the south from Gaza. And the fear is that that could happen here, that militants from Hezbollah could cross into Israel in the north. And those fears have really been heightened um, in the past few days since the assassination last week of a Hamas leader um, named Saleh al-Aruri in the Lebanese capital, Beirut. That was an attack that was blamed on Israel, though Israel didn't explicitly claim responsibility. But since then, there's been this volley of Hezbollah rockets into Israel and Israeli strikes, tanks, artillery, airstrikes into Lebanon. And like I mentioned, you know, warplanes are constantly flying back and forth over this border right now. So U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the region and has a lot on his plate uh, with the war in Gaza and, and fears of a new front where you are. So what's what's his schedule there? So he's in the Persian Gulf countries today. He's been talking to regional leaders about, you know, a role that they might play in rebuilding Gaza when the fighting ends. 
Blinken and the Biden administration have also been putting subtle pressure on on Israel to curtail its attacks on Gaza. You know, more than 22,000 people have been killed in Gaza, according to health officials there, mostly civilians. And Blinken said, quote, far too many Palestinians have been killed. But he's also said Israel has a right to defend itself and eliminate the threat of any, you know, future October 7th-like attack. Um, He lands in Israel tomorrow night. He'll be meeting with Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He's also going to do a trip into Ramallah in the Israeli-occupied West Bank to meet Palestinian leaders there. Obviously, fighting continues in Gaza. What is the latest there? Well, Israel says it's entered a new phase of fighting in Gaza, that it's wrapped up major combat in the north and is focusing on the south, on hunting Hamas leaders and finding Israeli hostages there. But airstrikes continue. And in fact, today, two journalists working for international media were in a car that was hit by an Israeli airstrike. One of them is the son of Wael Dahdu. He's a well-known journalist with Al Jazeera and famous for continuing reporting after the rest of his family was killed early in the war. Now his son has been killed. There's also been an Israeli airstrike today in the West Bank, and Palestinian health officials say six people were killed there. Israel's military said it fired on Palestinians after a patrol vehicle was struck by an explosive device and an Israeli border officer was killed. That's NPR's Lauren Freyer in northern Israel near the Lebanon border. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown, 35 degrees in Boston at 818. Coming up in about 15 minutes, some enrollees of Medicare Advantage say the government health insurance plan managed by private insurance companies often let them down after a serious diagnosis. That's ahead. More snow. The snow from the first storm of the season is piling up outside of Boston. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes has this update. Now we've changed back to snow in Boston and the most intense band of snow right now is focused from Sudbury east to Winchester and Saugus with inch per hour rates under it. Meanwhile, there's a little low right now in Central Mass and Southern New Hampshire and we're still mixing from time to time on the coast of Plymouth County and raining on Cape Cod. Still several hours to go with the back edge of the snow expected to move in 5 to 7 p.m. The snow ends early tonight should give way to cloudy skies. Right now it is 35 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The investigation into Friday night's blowout that forced an Alaska Airlines flight to make an emergency landing in Portland, Oregon, is focusing on a door replacement plug that failed. Federal safety investigators gave an update on their findings last night after the FAA grounded the Boeing MAX 9 jets that are fitted with a special door plug until they are inspected and repaired if necessary. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is calling on leaders in the Middle East to help keep the war in Gaza from widening into a broad broader regional conflict. Blinken is meeting with Persian Gulf leaders in Doha today after making a stop in Jordan. And college football's national championship will be decided tomorrow night. The top-ranked Michigan Wolverines play number two Washington in Houston. 
I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The Boeing 737 MAX jet, an aircraft that was under global scrutiny just a few years ago, is in the spotlight again after one of the planes experienced a mid-flight blowout of part of its fuselage and was forced to abruptly land in Oregon Friday night. The incident prompted the grounding and inspection of over 170 Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets. It comes less than five years after the plane's manufacturer was investigated for two deadly crashes. NPR's Juliana Kim reports. Passengers say on Friday, less than 20 minutes into the Alaska Airlines flight, chaos ensued. In videos taken by Elizabeth Lee and shared with NPR, a panel of the cabin, essentially a plug that covers over where an emergency exit might otherwise be installed, is completely missing, leaving a gaping hole on the plane's left side. Lee's videos also show passengers clinging onto their seat or breathing into oxygen masks. Fortunately, no one was seated by the window that flew off. There was thankfully no one seated near the window. Really? Yeah, they just said. The plane was originally bound for Ontario, California from Portland, Oregon, but it abruptly returned to Portland International Airport after the incident. 171 passengers and six crew members were on board. No serious injuries have been reported. The plane in question was a Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft. After the emergency landing, Alaska Airlines quickly grounded all 65 of its MAX 9 planes, vowing to inspect each jet before allowing it to fly again. On Saturday, the Federal Aviation Administration similarly ordered the immediate inspection of about 171 MAX 9s worldwide. Later, United Airlines also announced that all 79 of its MAX 9s would be grounded for inspection. Southwest and American Airlines told NPR they don't carry the model. Both the FAA and the National Transportation Safety Board are investigating. NTSB Chair Jennifer Honmady said no stone will be left unturned in the investigation. Certainly we're going to look at the maintenance records. We're going to look at repair, but this is a new plane. It was delivered and uh, was put into service in Nova on November 11th, but we're still going to want to look at that. Hamnady also asked the public for their help in finding the missing plane parts, which are believed to be near Cedar Hills outside of Portland. Friday's incident comes less than five years after Boeing was under global scrutiny for two deadly crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia, which killed 346 people. The pair of crashes involved an earlier model of the Boeing aircraft. In 2021, Boeing agreed to pay more than $2.5 billion to settle a criminal charge related to the accidents. Juliana Kim, NPR News. Trees are one of nature's best weapons against global warming. They take in the carbon dioxide that would otherwise trap heat in the atmosphere and break the molecules apart. They use the carbon to grow branches, trunks, and roots. 
Generally speaking, the bigger and older the tree, the more carbon it's captured. That's the logic behind a Biden administration proposal to protect old growth forests on federal land. Joining us now to explain is Meg Krawcheck, Associate Professor at the Oregon State University College of Forestry. Welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. First, I want you to define what old growth is under this proposal. <laughs> yeah, this is part of uh, uh, a sequence of initiatives that have gone through a stage of definition making and inventory. So that definition piece came through last year. And the clear piece that comes out of that is there is no one size fits all <laughs> sort of clear, uh, easy definition when we're talking about old growth. But we start to think about old as anywhere between, ooh, depending on where you are, it could be as low as 80 years old, but sometimes it's up to 100, 200, even 300 years old is when you start to get into sort of good, elite, high quality old growth. So last month, the U.S. Department of Agriculture said it was planning to add new restrictions on logging and old growth forests. Can you explain like how this proposal would work? Yeah, this is a this is a really exciting proposal. What we see in in this language is no cutting of old trees and old forests. Well, there's some wiggle room there, but there's an encouragement for stewardship within old forest settings. That will likely include thinning and removal of some younger trees in dry forest settings, but we want to keep the old trees. We're, we're not talking at all about removing big old trees. Why do older trees store more carbon? Um, and, and are they just storing more carbon or are they actually capturing more carbon than younger trees each year? You've hit on exactly the right distinction there in terms of what's already sequestered, what's already there versus what's being brought in annually. And there is, not surprisingly, a geography to that as well in terms of different species and how they grow. Uh, in general, we think about young trees growing fast and putting on a lot of carbon, but old trees, by the nature of being old, <laughs> are also still putting on substantial carbon. Some of them are slowing down, but you have to balance off that slowdown in association with what's already there <laughs> in terms of that carbon pool in the live trees and the dead trees in that whole forest stand or forest ecosystem. So again, another thing that's really complex. Mm. And so when it comes to what the federal government is doing, will these new restrictions make a difference in terms of climate change? So this is one piece of the puzzle uh, that is clear and important in terms of the carbon perspective. I think it's also useful to think about the broader ecosystem services of old growth, not just their carbon contribution. In terms of biodiversity, I would say it's a carbon plus <laughs> uh, in, when, we, when we're thinking about old growth. So uh, the timber industry has raised some concerns because, as they have said, that thinning out these old growth forests is important because it helps prevent forest fires. Like, are, are their concerns legitimate and are they addressed in this proposal? That is a very good question. Uh, in the drier forest systems where stewardship is going to be encouraged, I think there's a win-win between an ecological perspective and a timber perspective. Moister forest settings 
we do not have agreement <laughs> about when, where, and why there might be removal from those forest stands. So that's where there needs to be an ongoing conversation about why a timber industry would think that there should be timber removed from those, those particular stands and those particular geographies. And there will be a disagreement with ecological rationale that's articulated in this plan. So I know it takes a long time for the federal government to create regulations like this one. When are these rules likely to go into effect if they are finalized? Ah, well, some of that will depend on public opinion. Um, But I see in the language here that the final environmental impact statement is expected for January of 2025. So that's a year out for that point, depending on whether there are strong responses from the public or elements that take this into a court environment, things might be slowed down. Uh, So it's a little bit of a wait and see, to tell you the truth. That's Meg Krawcheck, Associate Professor at the College of Forestry at Oregon State University. Thanks so much for coming on. You're very welcome. Thanks, Aisha. Before 2019, most Americans had never heard of Lee Sun Kyun. He was already a beloved movie and TV star in South Korea, but his turn as the clueless head of the wealthy Park family in the movie Parasite, the first foreign film to ever win a Best Picture Oscar, also brought him international fame. And that level of fame came with intense scrutiny and pressure in his native South Korea. A recent scandal involving alleged drug use and blackmail may have proven to be too much for the actor. He was discovered in his car late last month, dead from an apparent suicide. Could his death force South Koreans to rethink the expectations for the stars they love? And we should warn you, this conversation will include more mentions of self-harm. We're joined now by syndicated columnist Jaha Kim. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me again, Aisha. Before we get into the scandal, who would be like a a fair comparison in Hollywood? Was he like a a Keanu Reeves, a a Denzel Washington? Like how, how big a star was he? He was a huge star. Although he's done action movies and action series, he's a thinking man's actor. So I'm thinking of somebody like Denzel who can do both. If you went to Korea and we're talking about like well-respected actors, his name would definitely have come up. He was a treasure. You know, I mean, stars everywhere have to maintain a a certain kind of image. uh, And certainly they can get caught up in, you know, get bad press if they make a misstep. But like, can you give us a, a sense of how much extra pressure there is to maintain a certain image in South Korea? Do you feel like it's different? In South Korea, especially with celebrities, they expect more in terms of presenting a wholesome image. That's why they don't talk often about girlfriends or boyfriends. Although drinking is allowed, if you have a DUI, that's going to be a huge issue to your career. It could be a career under scandals like even from your school days like middle school or high school where you were a school bully that's going to come back to bite you uh and and so can you tell us briefly about the scandal um that preceded lee's suicide yes and these are all alleged because he was tested for marijuana and drugs and he tested negative each time that the police tested him 
But there was a, a bar hostess at a high-end club in Seoul, and she had basically accused this actor of taking marijuana and ketamine. So after this came out, somehow this information came out then that, oh, he may or may not have been having an affair with this bar hostess because audio of them was leaked out to the press. It's like they were punishing him for perhaps having had an affair, which there's no proof of. And that's not a crime, but it's almost like the media and the police were trying to pin something on him because they couldn't get the drug charges to stick. So they were, wanted to get him for something else. So the last time that the police interrogated him, it was for 19 hours and it ended on Christmas Eve. And and so what has been the response in, in, in South Korea since Lee's death? The general public is like heartbroken over this and they want changes to be made. They brought him in for three interrogations. I mean, it's really ridiculous. And this is a man who leaves behind a wife and two young children. The boys are 12 and 14. And they had to, you know, attend a father's funeral. You know, for them, this is never going to go away. It lives on forever on the Internet. I understand that Lee left a, a letter that was, I guess, given to the police and it was leaked somehow. It was released. I don't know whether it was, it was authentic or not, but it basically said a few things like, he was apologizing to his family and to his colleagues and his management company. And supposedly he wrote in there that this was the only end that he could think of. That was the only option for him. And has there been talk about what changes could be made, whether it's on, on a personal level or a society level, to address this pressure? In the U.S., going to therapy, it's like, how many people do we know who go to therapy? And it's no big deal. But in South Korea, it's not really encouraged. Koreans are being more open about it, but it's still not something that Koreans or even Asian Americans are big on addressing. It's almost like seen as a sign of weakness. And I'm not just talking about, you know, what's going on in Korea. I'm talking about how, you know, my family and my friends' families were raised in the U.S. You know, it's, mm. it's, a, it's a sign of weakness. You have to be strong. That's columnist Jaha Kim. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Aisha, and thank you for addressing this very important issue. And for anyone experiencing thoughts of self-harm, the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline number is 988. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR at WBUR.org, 35 degrees in Boston at 835. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown. The first major storm of the season is bringing rain and snow before ending later today. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us now. Good morning, Danielle. Hey, good morning, Steve. Okay, did you get a lot of sleep last night? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> no more dreams about the rain snow line. Okay, uh, well, I'll ask you about that morning. in a moment here. Uh, yeah. but, but just right now, where's the snow falling uh, the hardest? 
Okay, so the hardest uh, band right now is actually set up just north of Boston. So we've got some deeper blues on the radar for places like uh, Waltham, stretching back up to Woburn and Winchester, North Reading, Danvers, Beverly. Uh, the closer you get to the coastline, though, it has been mixing with some rain from time to time, and the best conditions by far are definitely uh, south of Boston. And actually, Steve, there's a little break inland, so we've got lighter snow when you get outside of 495 and into south, uh, southern New Hampshire right now, little lull in the action before it fills back in. Mm-hmm. Is this, is this, I see the rain is mixing in here, so is this going to be a heavy, wet snow? Um, so just west of the city, yes, it is, you know, where that rain snow line set up. It, it's a wetter, um, pacier consistency. So I was actually just looking at the outage map and some of the um, damage reports coming in. They're not widespread, but there have been some pockets of damage and outages along the 495 to 128 belt just because of that wet, pasty nature of the snow north and west of Boston. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that elusive uh, rain snow line uh, that, mm-hmm. uh, that we've been talking about the past couple of days. Uh, where did, Where did it uh, come down? So it's been setting up right over Boston, just like forecast here, kind of wobbling in and around the city. So I know we've been changing over to some drops, and then it goes back to snow, but it's generally been light in the city. Uh, it's also been setting up through the south shore. So at times it will flip over, but it's light enough it's not accumulating. It's wet south of town, and it's rain, mainly a rain event. Temperatures are running 35 to 40 on the Cape. North and west of Boston, it's all snow. Mm-hmm. What's going to be happening over the next few hours and for the rest of the day? So I actually think over the next few hours there's a little um, – you know, kind of lull, so to speak. For the city of Boston, I think the worst of the storm for us is actually going to be either side of midday because colder air is going to snap around in the backside of the storm. For example, it's 35 in Boston right now, but it's actually in the 20s uh, just north and west of town. So there's kind of like a coastal boundary setting up. So when that wind shifts around a little bit, it's going to snap the colder air in. So so for somewhere like Boston and the city, we're going to get a pretty decent burst of snow from like noon to let's say 2 or 3 p.m., and that's when we may see a couple inches that actually accumulate out there. Sure. You've been warning about this flash freeze today. Uh, Give us some details Mm -hmm. about that. So, you know, for somewhere like Boston, and I'm looking at the map, Norwood is sitting at 36 with light snow right now. Marshfield's 37. So you're above freezing in the southeast part of the state, and your 20s north and west of that. When that cold air comes in, the temperature will drop very quickly this afternoon to early evening in the southeast part of the state. So, you know, obviously these are the spots that haven't had much snow and it's wet roads and spots. So my concern is anything untreatable freeze up quickly um, as those temperatures kind of crash this afternoon and evening in those areas. So definitely use extra caution in those spots. So if your car's got uh, a little bit of snow on it this afternoon and you think, hey, I'm not going to go out until tomorrow, you probably should get rid of the snow today. Get rid of it. I say get rid of it because, you know, the thing is, too, Steve, tonight we all drop into the teens uh, and 20s, so things are going to freeze solid. So I just say get the cleanup done. I know it's chilly. The wind chill's actually in the teens inland, and it'll drop into the teens tonight. Uh, Tomorrow the the sky's clear out tonight, and tomorrow the the sun is back. We may get a little bit of melting. We should see highs in the mid-30s tomorrow. Okay. When it's over, what are you expecting for the final snow totals? And I know it varies from, from place to place. It definitely does, but, you know, north and west of Boston, we've already seen four to eight inches, and we've had a couple amounts, like I just saw a report from Haverhill at a foot, um, Lemonster had like 11 inches, so there have been a few higher totals, and I anticipate a few more inches in those spots by the end of the t- day, so it'll end up being an eight to 12 inch event along and outside of 495. Then the closer you get to the coast, the amounts really uh, kind of get shaved off from four to eight to two to four right at the coast. I do think for us in Boston, we end up with a couple inches with that band of snow that comes in through early afternoon. Somewhere like the South Shore, it's a coating to an inch 
maybe towards the upper Cape and then amounts will ramp up inland. So the highest totals by far jackpot zone north and west of Boston. Okay, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce will check in with you a little bit later this morning. Thanks so much. Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Snowplow drivers are out clearing the roads parking lots and driveways. Nick Delito is took a quick break while plowing out in Worcester this morning. I'll go in and get a coffee, get some caffeine in me, and uh, like I said, fill the tank before everybody else gets, gets to it as the early morning comes. More than 12,000 households have lost power across central and eastern parts of the state. Massachusetts Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says road conditions are mixed, the highways are clear, but there are slippery secondary roads. Logan Airport, 39 flights have been canceled and 25 have been delayed since 6 this morning. The MBTA expects service to operate on its regular Sunday schedule. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com WBUR. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Protesters are camping out on a Maui beach to demand Hawaii's governor do more to provide long-term housing for families displaced by fire. It's getting pretty hard. A lot of them are paying mortgages on ash and rubble. Five months after the Maui fires, tourists have returned, but residents are still living in hotels. That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. The first puzzle of 2024. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey there, Will. Good morning, Aisha, and Happy New Year. Same to you. So, Will, would you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from Sandy Weiss of Chicago. I said, think of a famous movie title in four letters, change one letter and anagram the result to name another movie that came out 20 years later, then change one letter in that and anagram the result to name a third movie that came out 29 years after the second one. What movies are these? The answers are Dr. No... Tron and Thor. Oh, oh my goodness. There were more than 700 correct entries, and Tom Mosbrugger of Columbus, Ohio, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations, Tom. Thank you so much. So I, I'm guessing, were you, instead of staying out, you know, partying on New Year's Eve, were you sitting there figuring out this puzzle? Yes, I, <laughs> I had some help uh, weathering a cold. How did you figure this out? Uh, I sort of treated it as a math problem of just, like, figuring out how early the first movie would have had to be from, and then just look up four-letter movie titles and you get a whole bunch. So just uh, grinding through it, really. Nothing too elegant. Oh, wow. No, well, well, great job. How long have you been playing the puzzle overall? It was probably about a dozen years ago that a friend introduced me to the puzzle on a road trip. 
Okay. And what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Um, I'm a librarian, so I like to read a lot, and um, I also really enjoy hiking. Okay. Well, we love librarians over here, so that that that's great. Tom, I got to ask you, but I got to imagine you you great with words, but are you ready to play the puzzle? Ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> okay. Take it away, Will. All right, Tom and Aisha. Every answer today is a word that starts with a silent letter. You identify the words from their anagrams. For example, if I said tang, T-A-N-G, you would say nat, which starts with a silent G. So here you go. Number one is bonk, B-O-N-K. A knob. That's it. Hangs, H-A-N-G-S. Nash. That is correct. Lamps, L-A-M-P-S. Song. Good one. Naked. N-A-K-E-D. Uh, need. You got it. Shire. S-H-I-R-E. Hmm. Uh, so what would Tolkien say? I know. <laughs> uh, um, hires. Oh, uh, well, the hires, almost, the H is spoken there, but you got the right first letter. Okay. Um, oh, heirs, heirs. Heirs is it. Good. Ethnos. E-T-H-N-O-S. Hmm. This one, I am at a loss. Uh, yeah, those silent H's are tricky. Um, oof. Yeah, I am I'm stumped on this one. It's a good adjective to describe as a way to describe someone. Oh, yes. Honest. Thank you. Honest is it. Good. Honest. Oh, my goodness. How about dangler? D-A-N-G-L-E-R. I want it to be G-N. Yes. Okay. Um... And it's an adjective. Oh, like a, like a, like, like, like a gnarled. Oh, like yes. Exactly gnarled, like gnarled. gnarled. Yes. Perfect. Thank you for saying <laughs> Not that. just like it. It is gnarled. It is gnarled. Oh, my goodness. And here's your last one, CNN Memeo. That's CNN, like the news channel, M-I-M-E-O. Oh, this this has to be a mnemonic, right? Mnemonic is correct. Good job. Whoa. Wow. That was that was a tough one. But Tom, you just ran away with it. Like, how do you feel? Uh good and and humbled. Thank you for helping me <laughs> with gnarled. <laughs> No, you did a great job for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about the puzzle and its prizes at npr.org slash puzzle. And Tom, what member station do you listen to? I just moved from Cincinnati where I was a member of WVXU. Um, and we'll have to switch it to WOSU in Columbus. That's Tom Mosbrugger of Columbus, Ohio. Thank you for playing the puzzle. Thank you so much. Have a great 2024. You too. Okay, well, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Steve Bagish of Arlington, Massachusetts. Name certain weapons, remove the middle four letters, and the remaining letters spelled backward, describe what these weapons do. What is it? So again, certain weapons, remove the middle four letters, the remaining letters spelled backward, 
Describe what these weapons do. What is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, January 4th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will, and Happy New Year. Thank you, Aisha. Happy New Year. The world has only six species of dolphins and porpoises that live in fresh water. One of them inhabits Pakistan's Indus River. Fifty years ago, a Swiss scientist counted just 150 of them. But last year, a survey suggested there were nearly 2,000. One reason why they're doing well? The men and women who fish the Indus River, as NPR's Dia Hadid reports. <laughs> what they do, Bill? Oh, baby, baby. A fisherwoman laughs as she points across the water. Gulan Khatun says, there's a little baby, a dolphin baby. It looks like black waves, but she thinks that those are the backs. Ah! Indus River dolphins only come up for brief blips to breathe. I only managed to spot one with Khatun's help. And it's why fisher folk like her are key to reviving their numbers. We see communities reporting dolphins regularly. So, you know, they are like our eyes and ears. Uzma Khan works at the World Wildlife Fund. She says the fisher folk's knowledge is key because this dolphin doesn't live anywhere else in meaningful numbers. She says the dolphins likely ended up in the Indus River Basin as the prehistoric sea they once inhabited receded and the subcontinent emerged with its high mountains and long rivers. So they adapted to living in the Indus. They branched off from much of the rest of the dolphin family between 20 to 30 million years ago. So the Indus River dolphin is an ancient mammal. It's also hard to observe and hard to count. Last year, an expedition to check on their numbers was curtailed because outlaws attacked the researchers. This has been a recurring problem over the years. Here's Khan speaking at a TEDx lecture five years ago. We have our boats shot at. We had our teams taken hostage. So it's the fisher folk who are on the water all day, who are familiar with the dolphins, who know how to navigate around outlaws. They're the ones best place to observe the dolphins and the risks they face. And this is how they convey their observations. Fishermen who describe themselves as friends of the dolphin come for miles around to gather in a thatched hut by the Indus River to report their latest sightings to a WWF representative. Men sit in one group with a male researcher, women in another group with a female researcher. They're nearly all illiterate, so the reps are here to jot down their observations and ask more questions. One fisherman recounts seeing a baby dolphin stranded on a rock. A researcher tries to figure out why this might have happened. He asks questions like, was the water polluted? But this is only one of the many risks dolphins are facing in the Indus River these days. Ashik Ali is another veteran fisherman. He says some fishermen administer electric shocks in the water 
others dump in fertiliser. Both these methods help fishermen catch more fish, but they also harm the dolphins. So we ask, why do you help dolphins instead? NPR producer Vingus translates. We are protecting dolphin because it is a creature of God. The work of the fishermen has come alongside other measures to protect the dolphins. The most important was five decades ago when the government declared them a protected species after word spread that their numbers had dwindled to a few dozen. So since that protection was put in place, the numbers have been slowly creeping up. Gil Brolick is a global expert on the Indus River dolphin. She says there's a but. The species is very, very vulnerable, especially because all the animals are in a single river. That means their population is vulnerable to a single catastrophic event, like the spread of a contagious disease or a searing heat wave boiling the water. I'm an optimist, but it is a really precarious situation. Back by the Indus, Khatun, who took me out on the water, tells me helping dolphins comes at a price. The dolphins follow their boats, hoping to grab some of their catch. To keep them safe, she has to keep shifting her nets so they don't get tangled in them, suffocate and die. Doing that means she's got less time to focus on catching fish to take home, a livelihood that supports her, her adult children and her grandchildren. She earns about $7 a day. She says, we get nothing in return and asks, who will help us? Dear Hadid, NPR News, on the Indus River. love a fun new song to add to your New Year's resolution workout playlist. This is Murder on the Dance Floor by Sophie Ellis Bexter. And it's not new, just renewed. It's just the latest track to be dusted off and given new life. And NPR Music's Stephen Thompson joins us now to talk about that. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Aisha. So uh, first, give us the basics on this song and the artist. What is the, the history here? Well, the song Murder on the Dance Floor was a hit, like a huge hit across the UK and Australia and a few other countries in late 2001 and 2002. It kind of barely grazed the charts in the US, though. And basically what happened is the song gets used in a very pivotal scene at the end of the movie Saltburn, which is bonkers. This movie is, I don't know if you've seen Saltburn, but it is, no, no, no. It is, it is very polarizing, very memorable. I happen to love it. It has seared the song into the memory of basically anyone who has seen Saltburn. And so in the U.S., it's it feels newer to a lot of people. And so it has kind of become this viral hit, even though the song is about 20 years old. And we've seen this happen before because another song took a very similar path, mm -hmm. Running Up That Hill uh, by Kate Bush, topped the charts in the summer of 2022, right? 
Yeah, that song was placed in a very memorable scene in the TV show Stranger Things, and that song's from 1985, and a lot of the audiences that are watching Stranger Things and a lot of the audiences that embraced that song really weren't familiar with it. And so you're seeing this phenomenon more and more with the advent of streaming, with the advent of uh, you know TV shows and movies have been, have been placing songs in effective ways for decades now, but you're really seeing this blurring of the line between old and new on the pop charts in a lot of different ways. If you think about a lot of the songs that were big hits last year, a lot of them have ties to, you know, decades ago. And that's that's just a really interesting phenomenon where like it used to be that where if you turned on like the you know top 40 radio, you would only hear new songs. Mm. I mean, because it, rediscovering music is not a new phenomenon, no. but it seems like it's much easier to have that new life breathed into old tracks when you have streaming and also social media. Yeah, and I think so many ways that music is like uh, designated as successful, you know, like through the billboard charts or whatever, it's become a lot easier for fans to dictate that success. The The gatekeepers of like radio programmers don't have as much power as they used to. And now a really well-placed needle drop on TikTok can propel a song back onto the charts in ways that obviously weren't possible just a few years ago. When you look at these artists, though, like we like we talked about Kate Bush with Running Up That Hill, are these tracks and these artists, are they now better known than they were originally? I think you can certainly make the case. First of all, it charted much, much higher this time around. And that's a case where the song is definitely more successful in the 2020s than it was in the 1980s. Um, but it really depends on the song and, and on the artist. What's interesting to me about it is the, the, the kind of cross-generational conversation that winds up happening where, you know, I'm 51 years old. I play Running Up That Hill for my kids. It's a new song to them, but it's an old song to me, and we're able to celebrate it together. And I think that that's, that's really sweet and lovely to see. And, and one of the things that I think is really great about it, it breathes new life into these artists' careers. You know, Kate Bush was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in part because of all the renewed attention that was paid to running up that hill. She belonged in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as of years and years and years ago. And so I really like the fact that it's like shining new light on these artists' catalogs and giving them kind of new opportunities to be heard. And if they have more music they want to share with the world, they have a better opportunity to do that. And that's what's really exciting to me. That's Stephen Thompson of NPR Music. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you, Aisha. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or Staples.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown. 35 degrees in Boston at a minute and a half before 9 o'clock. More Weekend Edition is straight ahead here on WBUR, and we'll get an update on the forecast as the snow and rain continue here in Boston.
WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash grad programs. With the government's encouragement, Israelis have been arming themselves in large numbers since the Hamas attack on October 7th. In a case that something happened, I know that I have the equipment to run and help whoever needs it. But some warn the proliferation of weapons will lead to more and lasting gun violence. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. President Biden will officially kick off his re-election campaign in South Carolina tomorrow. Find out more. And a federal law is offering homeowners new incentives this year to make their houses more energy efficient. We have the details. What this does is this gives Americans a chance to upgrade their homes and make their homes more energy efficient, healthier, and more climate friendly. Also, the Navajo Nation is protesting plans to leave human remains on the moon. Plus, a new take on the classic jazz album, The Zodiac Suite. It's Sunday, January 7th. News is next. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is urging leaders in the Middle East to use their influence to prevent the war in Gaza from spreading. NPR's Jackie Northam reports from Tel Aviv that Blinken is in Doha today to meet with Persian Gulf leaders as part of his week-long tour of the region. Secretary Blinken says the primary focus of his trip is to try to contain Israel's war in Gaza. But there are other issues on his agenda getting hostages out of Gaza, and trying to get humanitarian aid into the enclave. The situation for men, women, and children uh, in Gaza remains dire. Far too many Palestinians have been killed, especially children. Far too many uh, remain incredibly challenged in terms of their access to food, to water, to medicine, to the essentials of life. Blinken says the future of Gaza once the war is over is also part of the discussions with Mideast leaders. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Tel Aviv. An Al Jazeera cameraman, an eldest son of its senior correspondent, has been killed in Gaza. One of the many casualties as Israel intensifies its offensive in the south of the enclave. The BBC's Sebastian Usher reports it's the latest tragedy for Wael al-Dada. Wael al-Dada has been shown live on Al Jazeera holding the body of his dead son Hamza, who'd been working as a cameraman. Hamza was killed with several other journalists as they were driving from Han Yunus to Rafah to report on the aftermath of the latest Israeli bombardments. The Israeli army has not yet made a comment. Wael al-Dadu suffered an earlier tragedy when his wife, his 15-year-old son and 7-year-old daughter 
were all killed in an Israeli strike in October as they sought refuge in the south of Gaza. El Dadu has himself been injured in another strike, but he's continued to report on the war. The Committee to Protect Journalists says the Israel-Gaza war has been the deadliest period for journalists since the CPJ began gathering data in 1992. The investigation into Friday night's blowout that forced an Alaska Airlines flight to make an emergency landing in Portland, Oregon, is focusing on a door replacement plug that failed. Federal safety investigators gave an update on their findings last night after the FAA grounded the Boeing MAX 9 jets that are fitted with the special door plug until their inspection and repaired if necessary. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin taking responsibility for not publicly announcing earlier that he's been hospitalized since Monday after receiving elective surgery. NPR's James Dubeck. Austin was in the hospital for four days before the Pentagon made it public Friday night. And as first reported by Politico, the Pentagon even kept the White House in the dark for three days about the defense secretary's absence. In a statement, Austin said, quote, I could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The first major storm of the season is bringing rain and snow before ending later today. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us now. Danielle, what is the storm doing right now? So right now, Steve, we've got a rain snow line that's still set up south of town through the South Shore into the city of Providence. Boston, we've got light snow, but the heaviest by far is just north and west of town where a coastal front setting up. Uh, what I mean by that is it's 35 in Boston right now, but it's 25 in Bedford with moderate snow and half mile visibility right now. So there's a big difference in consistency too. much fluffier snow inland where we've had a widespread six to 12 inches so far and then much less at the coast where there's little, if anything, in the city back down to Cape Cod where it's raining 35 to 40 right now. Okay, what about the rest of the day? Rest of the day, Boston flips back over to a steadier snow midday to the early afternoon. That's when we could see a couple inches of accumulation. So it's a widespread two to four inches additional that comes down in many spots, some higher totals north and west of Boston, and then a quick freeze over late this afternoon and evening as the temperature crashes from Boston to the South Shore. So watch out for some untreated surfaces to become a little bit slick in those areas. Okay, thank you very much. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce will check in with you later this hour. Massachusetts Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says road conditions are mixed. The highways are clear, but there are slippery secondary roads. Gulliver is warning of some black ice later today when temperatures drop. This is not like one of those situations where you had, uh, you know, a, a really big temperature drop that followed a rainstorm. This is, this is going to be a gradual thing. Uh, the good news about that is that it allows us to put some treatment down that would become effective. So we are going to have crews out overnight tonight, uh, really just trying to address any of those slippery spots that come up. But again, it's, it's something that people need to be cautious about. Flight cancellations and delays are being reported over at Logan Airport. The MBTA is not reporting any service delays. 17,000 power outages are being reported. The most are in Middlesex, Essex, and Worcester counties. Bruins beat the Lightning last night at the Garden. The Celtics beat the Pacers in Indianapolis. The Patriots take on the Jets this afternoon down in Foxborough. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for gathering here with us today. The start of the new year means things are getting real for the 2024 presidential race. President Joe Biden delivered a fiery speech in Pennsylvania on Friday when he brought up the January 6th attack on the Capitol three years ago. As America was attacked from within, Donald Trump watched on TV in a private small dining room off, my oval, oval, off the Oval Office. The entire nation watched in horror. The whole world watched in disbelief. And Trump did nothing. Former President Donald Trump also gave a speech on Friday. Here to tell us more about those speeches, NPR national political correspondent Mara Liason. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Aisha. So President Biden's speech focused on threats to democracy posed by another Trump presidency. Is that more or less going to be the crux of President Biden's campaign? Yes, I think it is. Trump's role on January 6th in the insurrection on January 6th is what the Biden campaign feels is Trump's biggest weakness. They feel he's a threat to democracy. Biden gave a very tough speech. He went on to say you can't be pro-insurrectionist and pro-American. And he was referencing Trump's support for the January 6th rioters, calling them patriots and political prisoners. This is not dissimilar from the way Biden started his last campaign in 2020. He called it a battle for the soul of the nation. And he believes that American democracy's survival is what this election is all about, too. Now, politically, he is trying to make the election a referendum on his opponent. Uh, presidential re-elections are usually a referendum on the incumbent, but when you're polling as badly as Biden is, you have no choice but to disqualify your opponent. You can't just run on your record and all the positive things you feel you've done for the American people. Okay, but President Biden is officially kicking off his campaign in South Carolina tomorrow. Tell us a bit about the voters that he's trying to rally there. Well, he's clearly trying to rally African-American voters. He's going to go to the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. That's where 10 people were shot by a white supremacist in 2015. Nine of them died. So this is also a callback, a reference to his campaign in 2020, when he said it was the white supremacist march in Charlottesville, Virginia, three years earlier that motivated him to run for president because he saw that march as an attack on American democracy and on equal rights. That's where marchers were chanting, among other things, Jews will not replace us. But also, as you said, he needs to shore up his support among key Democratic constituencies, first and foremost, African-American voters who have been softening in their support for him. He needs them to turn out. And, and he's got a lot going on today. It, it was reported last night that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was hospitalized on New Year's Day, and it took the Pentagon three days to tell the White House. I, that doesn't sound like standard practice. I mean, even with my boss, I got to call in, you know? <laughs> it isn't standard practice. Lloyd Austin was hospitalized on Monday. The White House wasn't told till Thursday. The public wasn't told till Friday. Uh, and this is very unusual. Now, Austin has resumed his full duties. He released a statement saying that he took res full responsibility for the decisions around disclosing his hospitalization. He says he could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed. And he said, I commit to doing better. Okay, so now we'll turn to former President Donald Trump's speech. He criticized President Biden's economic and immigration policies and said this. It's no wonder crooked Joe Biden and the far-left lunatics are desperate to stop us by any means possible. They don't care how. They don't care. They don't have any scruples. They're weaponizing law enforcement for high-level election interference. 
So what are you hearing there from him? Well, he is saying that the indictments against him are a way to rig the election, to stop him from winning. He's One of his modus operandi is always to accuse his opponent of what he's accused of. So he's saying that Biden is the real threat to democracy. Now, Trump is fighting battles in a lot of venues. He's fighting in court, but he's also fighting in the court of public opinion, which at least for now, in the universe of Republican primaries, he is winning. You know, a majority of Republican voters believe that these indictments are witch hunts, that he's being persecuted, that he was the true winner of the last election. Whether that continues into a general election and he's able to convince independent voters and swing voters of that is unclear. Okay, uh, looking ahead, the Iowa caucus is eight days away. When you look at both Biden and Trump, uh, these front runners are, are rather unpopular, right? Very unpopular. They have a lot in common. They're both old, white, male, and unpopular. And the American people have told pollsters again and again, this is not the matchup they would prefer, but there's still a high likelihood that it's what they're going to get because there's no strong opposition to the nomination on the Democratic side for Biden, and none of Trump's Republicans' com competitors have been able to attack him very effectively. He is way out ahead. That's NPR National Political Correspondent Mara Eliason. Thank you so much, Mara. You're welcome. Argentina's new president, Javier Millet, has a big right-wing agenda. Not even a month in office, he has sent Congress a series of reform packages that would radically transform the Argentinian state. For more on this, we're joined by Daniel Politi. He is a freelance reporter based in Buenos Aires. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So first, tell us about these new changes um, that the president is set out to enforce. How big a deal are these changes? Well, I mean, to be honest, the, these, these first few weeks of Millet being president have been really dizzying here in Argentina. There's been just package after package of reforms that he's putting forward that he really wants to implement a wholesale change in, in Argentine society. First, he issued an emergency decree and then sent a massive bill to Congress in which he's seeking to nix or annul or amend hundreds of regulations and laws, basically deregulating the economy as much as possible. And he's also implementing some social changes, such as placing limits on, on protests and threatening jail time to those who block roads as a form of protest, which is a very common thing here. And in probably what is one of the most controversial moves, Millet is calling on lawmakers to give him superpowers, to cede some of their power that, that lawmakers usually have so he can make unilateral decisions on the economy, on taxes, on pensions, among other issues. And why does he say these changes are needed? Well, Millet has compared Argentina basically to an intensive care patient who needs dire shock measures in order to improve and avoid a wholesale collapse. It's no secret that Argentina is a famously crisis-engulfed economy. It jumps from crisis to crisis. And it's been suffering from high inflation for years. And Malay has blamed that on the country's yawning fiscal deficit and the penchant of, of governments to, to print as much money as possible to pay for social programs. So he says Argentina must make itself more attractive to investors, get rid of economic distortions that, that came after years of of different subsidy programs and, and welfare programs that were set up by really left-leaning governments. 
And economically, like, what would change if these packages were approved? Millet is an economist. He describes himself as a libertarian. And he wants to basically get rid of the state's ability to regulate the economy, get rid of any sort of price controls on things like health insurance and fuel. And he wants to decrease the size of the state and also privatize any state-run companies. There are around 40 companies, some big, some tiny, that, that he wants to be able to privatize to basically cut down the cost of the state, which he says will help to close the fiscal deficit and can help get the economy moving again. Mm. You, you've been talking to a lot of voters. What have they been telling you about these moves that Millet is, is making and, and what's been their reaction? Well, I mean, opposition to Millet's measures were pretty immediate. So the emergency decree, this package of, of laws that he sent to Congress, immediately spurred protests across the country, in Buenos Aires specifically. There are regular protests outside Congress and key points of Buenos Aires, for example. But to be honest, for now, it seems most people are putting these reforms in the backseat because they have more immediate concern, which is prices in Argentina have been skyrocketing since Millet took office. He lifted price controls and also devalued the local currency by more than 50%. So, so prices have been increasing at a really dizzying pace in a country where price increases were already normal. So it's sort of, people are really struggling to keep up. They, they seem willing to give Millet the benefit of the doubt for now, but it's unclear how long that's going to last. Uh, the main labor union has already called for a general strike later this month to oppose some of these measures. So, so it's likely that these, these sort of protests and, and social unrest around uh, Millet's proposals will, will continue to increase. Well, you know, one of the packages put forward relates to labor rules and, and changing those, but that package was struck down by a court. Can, can you tell us about that? Yeah, a, a court gave way this week to an injunction request by, by the country's largest labor union, which is the one that I had said earlier called for the strike, um, which effectively puts on the measures on pause that have to do with, with labor, which involves, for example, making it easier for companies to, to fire people, um, making it cheaper to take on new workers. Many, many constitutional experts have said that Millet's decree is patently unconstitutional. And, and what's happened this week with the labor package is, is just a preview of the legal battles that are likely to lie ahead, because a, a lot of organizations are likely to put forward legal challenges to, to many of the different sections of, of the decree and the proposed law. Mm. That's Daniel Politi, freelance reporter in Buenos Aires. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org, 35 degrees in Boston at 918. This winter storm's going to be with us for most of the day. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce has this update on what's going on right now. Boston, we've got light snow, but the heaviest by far is just north and west of town where a coastal front's setting up. Uh, what I mean by that is it's 35 in Boston right now, but it's 25 in Bedford with moderate snow 
and half mile visibility right now. So there's a big difference in consistency too. much fluffier snow inland where we've had a widespread six to 12 inches so far and then much less at the coast where there's little, if anything, in the city back down to Cape Cod where it's raining 35 to 40 right now. And Danielle will be back in less than 15 minutes for another live update on today's weather. WBUR supporters include Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Doha. He's meeting today with Persian Gulf leaders as part of his latest tour of the Middle East aimed at keeping the war in Gaza from spreading into a wider regional conflict. Three Florida residents are expected to be arraigned tomorrow on charges linked to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. They were arrested early yesterday as the nation marked three years since a mob tried to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. And while heavy snow is expected to spread across New England today from that storm that's been socking the East Coast this weekend, forecasters are also keeping an eye on a separate snowstorm forecast to begin hitting the Midwest tomorrow. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, at rwjf.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. In the push by elite colleges to create a diverse campus with students from all walks of life, one group that often gets neglected is rural students. It's costly and time-consuming for recruiters to visit small, out-of-the-way communities. But a new collective, including some of the top universities in the country, is trying to change that. NPR's Elissa Nadwerney reports from East Tennessee. Any seniors that are here in the room can get a show of hands. Crossville, Tennessee is a small city of 12,000 people between Nashville and Knoxville, just off Interstate 40. I'm here on a Wednesday evening after school at Stone Memorial High School. Here's our whole list of majors in here. About half a dozen college admissions officers. Uh, we're, we're known for our sciences. From Yale, Vanderbilt, MIT, and Case Western Reserve. We are in a metropolitan city. We are not the concrete jungle. Are set up right? in the lobby outside the auditorium. They've got branded tables filled with swag. So I'm going to give you a Teagle sticker for sure. This stop in Crossville, far off their typical recruiting routes, is part of a multi-day swing through Tennessee, an effort for these colleges to beef up their outreach to rural communities. They're answering questions and meeting with students. What's your acceptance rate? Like 4%. How is your out-of-state tuition? I don't know much about Yale, so is there anything that's important to like, know off the... Yes. But, okay. I can quickly give you an overview of some stuff. What do you guys offer for like extracurriculars? About 100 or so students and their family showed up tonight. I wasn't originally planning on like applying to any like Ivy League or like prestigious schools. Hanging around the Yale booth 
is Isabella Cross, yes, who will tell anyone how proud she is to be a rural kid. We take care of each other around here. I mean, if we see you on Walmart, we're going to stop and talk to you for 45 minutes. We're going to ask how the kids are. We're going to ask how your mama's doing. Despite her confidence, she still can't believe these schools are here in her hometown. Coming down to little Crossville, Tennessee, a little no-name town. A college fair like this, she says, it tells her. They heard us and they see us and that they know that there's small town kids like me who have really big dreams. And it's taken a long time. For years, colleges have paid little attention to rural students. Even though they graduate from high school at higher rates than urban and suburban students, they're less likely to go on to college, especially a faraway college out of state. They've never come and taken an interest in us. Karen Hicks is the lead counselor at Stone Memorial. She's been an educator here for more than three decades. The big thing right now is rural and they're finally seeing it, I guess, right? <laughs> she says to people who work in rural areas, the value that rural students have is pretty obvious, and it's not new. I love it in the sense that it gives our kids opportunities. I hate that they didn't see it before. There are 16 elite colleges that are part of this effort, called STARS. They agree to visit rural high school students in exchange for financial help with travel costs and staffing. It's funded by a $20 million grant from a trustee of the University of Chicago, one of the participating schools. But these colleges do have an uphill battle. The first is just familiarity, says Amy Beth Strong, whose daughter Ellie Beth is a senior at Stone Memorial. I think it's just exposure. I, I, I don't think they think that they can go there. Or even is you. <laughs> See? I don't know of any kids, even in Knoxville area, where I have friends from college whose kid even said they were going to Yale, they were applying to Yale. They were, I mean, it's not something that in our rural area that we hear. Ellie Beth is planning on staying local. There's a community college just down the street. I like it here and like all of my friends are here. Mostly everybody's gonna stay close to home, I'm pretty sure, so. And here in Tennessee, two years at community college is free. That's hard competition for these out-of-state, expensive schools. Even though, in reality, many top schools with their huge endowments offer a ton of financial aid. High starting salary, it's a good ROI for students. And although we are expensive on paper, we meet need. A lot of students don't realize how affordable out-of-state options are. But there are students for whom this fair is exactly what they needed. Marley Jones is a high school senior who's finally made it to the front of the line to talk with the Yale rep. What kind of physics program do you guys have? She drove an hour to be here tonight, and she's got her mom, Julie, with her. She takes the highest rigor available at her school. That's the best she can do for where she lives, correct? Yeah, exactly. Marley got a perfect score on her SAT. She's a great student. She hadn't even considered Yale. But at the college fair, she got to talk with real-life admissions folks from the Ivies, and it made her believe she could go. I feel a lot more confident meeting representatives from them. It helped personalize them a little bit. It definitely made them feel more relatable. In the weeks following that college fair, Marley applied to Yale and MIT. And a few weeks ago, she got an interview with MIT. Heading into the new year, she's feeling incredibly optimistic. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News, Crossville, Tennessee. And this story was a collaboration with the Heckinger Report, a nonprofit newsroom covering education.
The first month of the new year has many of us in a planning mood. And if you're a homeowner, your plans might include upgrading your house, maybe replacing that drafty front door or that old gas stove. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 has a bunch of incentives aimed at helping you make your home more energy efficient. This year and next, a few more incentives will roll out. Kara Saul Rinaldi is the president and CEO of the Andal Policy Group. She's worked on climate and clean energy policy for two decades and joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the Inflation Reduction Act. Like, how are incentives included in that law aimed at getting people to think differently about upgrading existing homes? So the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act have a potential to change the way Americans think about energy consumption because they're really wide ranging. There's both the 25C tax incentives, those will be tax credits off of your tax bill at the end of the year. And then they also have rebates and those will help homeowners that also don't have access to the tax credits because they don't have a tax liability. What this does is this gives Americans a chance to upgrade their homes and make their homes more energy efficient, healthier, and more climate friendly. I mean, a lot of people are aware that there are like tax credits and deductions for things like if you get some insulation or, you know, or you replace, you know, your gas furnace with the heat pumps. But are there specific things that happen this year that are going to help homeowners out a little bit more? Right. So the old 25C tax credit was a tax credit that has existed since 2005. And that's the same 25C tax credit we've known. But what has happened differently with that tax incentive in the in the Inflation Reduction Act is that now it's annual and it's been increased up to $3,200 a year. So it is significantly higher than it used to be a lifetime credit of $500. So one thing to know is that if you've done insulation and you've taken advantage of the tax credit or you've upgraded your heater or your boiler, there's still an opportunity for you to do even more and get a deeper retrofit. The other thing that's happening this year, there's $8.8 billion in rebate programs. And those rebate programs are split across the states. And then they will be start rolling those out to homeowners. And homeowners will be able to apply for funding to upgrade their heat pump, electric wiring, or looking at their whole home as a system and seeing how can we upgrade the efficiency of the home using the performance-based rebates, because there's two different rebate programs. Let's talk about the rebates because, you know, I have an older home. Mm -hmm. And so the only time I'm replacing anything is when it breaks down and it can't be fixed anymore. But that means you got to pay. Rebates seems like they would be good for people who are on fixed or low incomes and just don't have that type of cash flow. So what the rebates will do is help a homeowner make that more climate friendly decision because if they choose the more efficient, the higher technology, the more electric technology, then they will get a rebate. They can get $8,000 for a heat pump or $840 for an electric stove. And the important thing about that is that people will be able to make a decision to do the more climate friendly option and be rewarded for it at the point of sale. Well, this is making me want to figure out, because as I said, my home is old. This is making me want to figure out what rebates I can get. Is there a place where it's easy to find this information? Because I think part of the problem, too, can be 
I don't know where to even find out what I can get and how I can get it. Well, Department of Energy does have a home energy rebates website, but for each individual in their state, it's going to depend on the state. Some states may decide not to apply for the rebate program. I certainly hope that's not the case. Some already have their plans in place, have already applied. Others, they're still putting those plans together. Some of the best pathways will be to look at the DOE's website and your state energy offices. That's Kara Saul Rinaldi of the Andil Policy Group. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. On October 7th, Hamas terrorists killed or kidnapped nearly 400 young people attending the Nova Dance and Music Festival in southern Israel. Some of Nova's producers, who are now also survivors, have opened a memorial exhibit to keep the memory of their friends alive. NPR's Jason DeRose visited the exhibit in Tel Aviv. And a warning, this story contains graphic material some may find difficult to hear. On the morning of October 7th, just before dawn, Nimrod Arnon was dancing in the desert. He helped found the Nova Festival nearly a decade ago. For him, it's more than a party. It's a community, it's a movement, uh, it's people that uh, like to be with each other. Uh, we share the same values of uh, free love, uh, green environment, and love and accept each other. When you enter the memorial at Tel Aviv's Expo Center, you hear music that was playing that morning. You step over blankets, abandoned games of checkers, a book cracked open, real items left behind. This is the camping site. People come to uh, the whole weekend and they bring uh, their tents, their uh, equipment. Arnon says the fun weekend in the desert turned to horror when armed Hamas gunmen crashed the party. He walks me over to half a dozen porta potties riddled with bullet holes. Here you can see the toilet cabins uh, where people hide from the terrorists. These are the original uh, entrance of the bullets of the terrorists. This what you see is uh, dry blood. Dry blood on toilet seats, spatter barely cleaned for this exhibit. Nearby, a pileup of charred vehicles. These are cars got burned to the ground. Uh, people are inside uh, still. There are DNA parts and... Uh, while the bodies have been removed, he says authorities told him there is still the ash of human remains dusting the cars. Arnon walks among piles of abandoned flip-flops and sneakers. A basket cradles hundreds of car and house keys that nobody ever claimed. And have you been to Yad Vashem? Yes. Okay, so this is our Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem, Israel's national Holocaust memorial, was one of Arnon's inspirations for the exhibit. He ends our tour standing in front of a massive digital display. Portraits of those killed at Nova drift from right to left on the screen. See the faces of 400 youngsters who came to dance and enjoying life and found their death. This is Ayelet, my little sister. In the pink? Yeah. Ayelet was just 22 years old, shot to death. The exhibit focuses on a few hours of one terrible day. It means different things to different people. For many, it's a memorial. Others will notice no mention of the thousands who've been killed in Gaza. And for some, like Tel Aviv resident Adi Kravitz, it's a call to action, strengthening her resolve against Hamas. It's very important to see, like the Holocaust, 
If people forget why we fight, you need to see it. Because there are lessons, Kravitz says, clearly left to be learned. Still, she noticed in the memorial a glimmer of hope. The signs that uh, we will uh, dance again. We think about the future. Israel will dance again. It's an optimism, a resolve really, shared by exhibit creator Nimrod Arnon. We need help to keep this uh, light and to ignite the light and to spread it to the world. A necessary light, he says, glancing at a pile of dusty shoes, because the darkness right now is very real. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Tel Aviv. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown. 35 degrees in Boston at 935. Even while it's snowing heavily in some parts of the state, work is continuing to clear the roads. That's just one of the plows making the rounds early this morning in Worcester. The first major storm of the season will be with us all day. And WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us now. Good morning, Danielle. Good morning, Steve. So where's the snow falling the hardest right now? The hardest right now is just north and west of Boston. So we've had this um, band setting up from Burlington along Route 3, just north of Medford, uh, Wakefield, over to Danvers, Lynn, and Salem. The closer you get to the coastline, though, it has been mixing with some raindrops. So places like Marblehead back up to Gloucester. The city of Boston, we've been flip-flopping. And then inland, um, it's let up a little bit. It's a lighter snow, but it's also a fluffier snow in those areas, Steve. Yeah, so so there are some parts that are getting heavy, wet snow, the kind that's hard to shovel. Yeah, it was definitely a wetter consistency last night, too. So, like, I live north of Boston. A lot of the, you know, uh, branches are kind of drooping a little bit, and I've seen some reports of a few damages and outages along the 495 belt where the heaviest snow totals have come down. Um, in the city of Boston, we've been flip-flopping, but same for the South Shore. It's been mainly rain for places like, you know, Hingham and Hull and Weymouth Point South. But I do anticipate a flip back to snow in those areas as we head into the afternoon. Mm-hmm. What about the uh, the elusive rain-snow line that you've been talking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, where did, where did it uh, come down? So it pretty much set up over the city of Boston. It was briefly uh, just west of town and then up through Essex County, down through the South Shore and Cape. So it's been mainly rain Even where we flip to snow, kind of back and forth in Boston, not much obviously has accumulated. The roads are wet, not white. Uh, So north and west of that, it's been all snow. And then south and east of that, it's been mainly rain. What's going to be happening over the next uh, few hours and the rest of the day? So a coastal front has set up. And what I mean by that is Boston right now, let's see, is sitting at 35 degrees Mm -hmm. and Bedford you know, just north and west of town is 25. So that's a big difference. And what's going to happen here is the cold air is going to snap in for the remainder of eastern Massachusetts this afternoon and evening. So even in the city of Boston, I expect the temperature to drop through the afternoon and evening into the 20s. So a quick freeze up is possible for the city down to the south shore. Just be aware of that because mm-hmm. obviously these areas haven't had much snow. Any leftover moisture may freeze up quickly if anything's untreated in those spots. Yeah, as we mentioned last hour, it's a good idea to get out there and and clear any of that slush that might be on your car so that you can uh, get out of your driveway tomorrow. Definitely, because the temperature tonight, Steve's going to drop too in the teens for everybody, teens and 20s. So it's going to freeze up no matter where you are. When it's all over, what are you expecting for the final snow totals? 
So we're not done yet, right? So like somewhere like Boston, you know, it's been mostly wet, but I think from noon to let's say like three in the afternoon, we do get a burst of snow and that's our best shot of picking up a couple inches in the city itself. Just west of town, uh, it's more like two to four, then it ramps up four to eight. We've already had about a foot. I just saw a report come in from Methuen of a foot or just over a foot in Haverhill stretching back out near the Worcester Hills. We've got like 10 or 11 inches. So a lot of spots north and west of town may get an additional few inches before it's done. Even on the South shore, we may get a coating to an inch as that back edge comes through with the snow flipping over this afternoon to early evening. It all should end, Steve, about mm, 5 to 7 p.m. from west to east. Okay, I guess it's safe to say winter is here. It is here. It is <laughs> it's here. arrived. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Steve. Massachusetts Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says road conditions are mixed. He says the highways are mostly clear, but there are slippery secondary roads. For anyone heading to Foxborough for the Patriots' final season game, Gulliver says the roads to Gillette Stadium are in good shape. Thankfully, that area of the state is actually not getting as much snow as, as the uh, the rest of the state, but it's something that we are addressing. We're working closely with, with Foxborough, with Gillette, and, and state police and others to make sure that we are going to be really hitting those uh, connecting highways, Route 1 and other roads, pretty hard uh, approaching that game and, and after the game. The MBTA is not reporting any service delays. Commuter Rail says it has crews clearing the tracks and stations of snow. There are some cancellations and delays over at Logan. 17,000 power outages are being reported this morning, and most of those are in Middlesex, Essex, and Worcester counties. There's a report that the Patriots coach Bill Belichick's future with the team still has not been decided. ESPN Patriots reporter Mike Reese says owner Robert Kraft and team president Jonathan Kraft have been meeting with Belichick scheduled for tomorrow. I'm told that over the course of the season, the Crafts have had strong feelings about the possibility of moving on, but that no final decision has been made at this time and that any meeting or meetings that they have in the coming days will be the key to ultimately them coming to a final decision. This year's Patriots team was the worst record since Belichick became head coach more than two decades ago. New England's losing season ends today when they play the Jets in Foxborough. The Bruins beat the Lightning last night at the Garden, 7-3 the final score in that game. Celtics beat the Pacers in Indianapolis, 118-101. Again, we'll have snow mixed with rain this morning, changing over to all snow this afternoon. Temperatures will fall throughout the afternoon, down to around 25 degrees. Snow early this evening, giving way to cloudy skies. Lows will be in the mid-20s. Should be sunny tomorrow. The high's near 35. It's 35 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Viking, dedicated to creating travel experiences for the thinking person, with programs designed for cultural enrichment on board and on shore. Learn more at viking.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Last fall, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham issued a sweeping series of executive orders to address gun violence and drug use. It also addressed the need for addiction treatment among young offenders. But in some cases, the change means that minors get sent to detention where treatment might not be available. Megan Myskowski at KUNM explains. At the Santa Fe Recovery Center, Jocelyn Herrera helps find services for people struggling with addiction. She doesn't have anywhere to stay overnight, so I was thinking maybe we can see if the crisis center would Herrera is 29 and used to struggle with addiction herself. She started using painkillers by age 13 and had moved on to heroin by the time she was 18. As a teen, she was arrested regularly for shoplifting and running from the police. She would be locked up for anywhere from a night to a couple of weeks at a time. At a young age, you should be offering them more support than putting them in a detention center. Herrera did finally beat her addiction, but she says it didn't happen in juvenile detention and never would have. It was a horrible experience, especially having to go through the withdrawals, being locked and confined in a place where they treat you disrespectfully. Herrera says she didn't embrace treatment until she was older. She says going to juvenile detention just made her a better criminal. In September, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham signed a public health order to address gun violence and drugs in the state. We rank among the worst in child well-being and in violence in our state. A spokesperson for the governor said the public health order mandates that if a young patient needs drug treatment, then Medicaid contractors must find a placement within 24 hours. But that treatment might not exist. A recent state study found only a third of New Mexicans struggling with addiction were getting treatment. Dr. Chloe Stoffel works with young people in recovery at the University of New Mexico. We have a lack of resources in general for our young people, but when it comes to kids struggling with substance use disorder, it's a much, 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 much smaller pool of resources for those kids. But advocates are most concerned about a different part of the governor's order. That part rolls back a policy allowing some minors who get arrested to avoid juvenile detention. Now, more young people are going straight to jail who otherwise wouldn't have. Nearly a third of young people detained in the last three months would have been allowed to stay home pending trial before the change. So why did the governor change that? Luhan Grisham says she thinks detention could help young people confront addiction. That's often the way that you get, particularly a young person or a young adult, to be able to accept treatment. The governor's office did not provide any evidence for this. Dr. Matthew Alsma is a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. He says detention rarely motivates young people struggling with addiction. Research has pretty consistently shown that a court order to Treatment doesn't predict treatment engagement. The problem with detention is that many kids learn worse behavior behind bars and usually go back. A much better approach to help a young person get into treatment is to make that referral in the community, to use resources in the community to motivate that young person to show up and to engage. At the Juvenile Detention Center in Albuquerque, there are some medical and psychological services but young people are only there for brief periods of time. Serenity Mesa is different. 
It's a private facility for young people in recovery. We've got an unobstructed view of the entire city. All the leaves are changing right now. They're gold, yellow, green. David Burke runs Serenity Mesa. He says most kids treated here have already been in detention. The program here includes therapy as well as lessons on things like writing a resume or getting an ID. You put somebody in jail, you don't treat any of that stuff and you don't treat a way to get a job and to find a different way of doing things. And then you send them back out to the same place that they were and in the same environment, in the same situation, they're going to do the same things. He says programs like his that help build life skills over time are more likely to help recovery stick. But it's expensive work which means right now they only have 14 beds. For NPR News, I'm Megan Myskowski in Albuquerque. This story comes from NPR's partnership with KUNM and KFF Health News. Tomorrow, United Launch Alliance is scheduled to launch a landing craft for the moon. It would be the first ever private commercial mission to the moon, but Navajo Nation is protesting. From member station KNAU in Flagstaff, Arizona, Bree Burkett reports. Monday's mission is essentially a delivery service. It's carrying some NASA scientific instruments for future lunar exploration, alongside a soda can for brand promotion. And two companies have sold space on the lander for memorial flights, which will leave cremated human remains on the moon for a minimum price of about $13,000. That's not a first. In 1998, NASA sent the ashes of geologist Eugene Schumacher to the moon. The Navajo Nation protested then and is doing so again now. Boo Nigren is the Navajo Nation president. Our stance was the same as it was in the 90s because time and promises do not expire. NASA promised to consult with tribes after the 1998 launch when the Navajo said placing human remains on the moon was insensitive to the beliefs of many Native Americans who hold the moon sacred. But President Nigren says that didn't happen and asked NASA to delay the mission until the tribe's objections are addressed. He says the tribe is not against space exploration. We're not trying to claim the moon. We're not trying to claim the sky or the universe or anything like that, but you should do it in respect. NASA program manager Chris Colbert says the agency can't do anything about it, though, because it's a commercial mission and out of their control. They don't have to clear those payloads with us. These are truly commercial missions. It's up to them to sell what they can sell. Celestis and Elysium Space are sending small portions, no more than three grams, of the cremated remains of a combined 95 people and one dog. Loved ones are invited to attend the launch and track the lander's progress online. Navajo Nation President Nigren met with representatives from NASA and the White House Friday. But the launch is still scheduled to go on as planned, with the human remains on board. Nigren says the agency again pledged to consult with the tribe in the future. NASA's Joe Kearns again confirmed that is agency policy. We take concerns like expressed from the Navajo Nation very, very seriously. And we think we're going to be continuing on this conversation. The ULA's Vulcan Centaur rocket is scheduled to launch from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida after 2 a.m. Eastern Time Monday. The landers are supposed to reach the moon on February 23rd. For NPR News, I'm Bree Burkett in Flagstaff. Do you know the zodiac signs of your friends? The late black jazz legend Mary Lou Williams did. Dizzy Gillespie... Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane, they were all Libras. So Mary Lou wrote a song for them and called it Libra. She wrote 12 songs, in fact, 
each named after one of the zodiac signs and most of them dedicated to a friend or group of friends. It's called the Zodiac Suite. It, to be honest, she even admitted herself that she was no fervent astrologist. Uh, she really used the Zodiac Suite in the astrological signs um, sort of as a vehicle to dedicate music to some of her closest friends and colleagues. Erin Deal is another celebrated black jazz musician, a pianist like Williams and now very much in his prime. He recently released a rendition of the Zodiac Suite, a nominee for a 2024 Grammy Award. It was an attempt to capture the essence of her original intentions when she uh, scored this arrangement and give an opportunity for listeners to hear the first complete recording of this orchestral arrangement of Zodiac Suite. Aaron Deal says Mary Lou Williams didn't finish the orchestral arrangements for the suite. She worked on it for three years and got burned out from that and her other commitments. So he decided to pick up the project where she left off and bring it to completion. Aaron Deal says an encounter at Juilliard where he studied inspired his interest in Mary Lou Williams. I had the privilege of meeting a gentleman by the name of Father Peter O'Brien, who was uh, Mary Lou Williams' manager for the last uh, 20 years or so of her life. And um, he was both a Jesuit priest and a jazz manager, <laughs> uh, if you can square those two. That's a quite a combination. Yeah, right? And he came uh, to sort of advise um, the program on a Mary Lou Williams concert that they did back in, I want to say, around 2004 or so. Uh, a few years later, I started playing uh, at a predominantly Black Catholic church in Harlem. Father O'Brien came one Sunday and recognized me and so that was really the beginning of uh, uh, our partnership. So the original Zodiac Suite, um, it, it stands out because here was this jazz pianist um, and, and composer venturing into classical music and, and, and and that was a big deal at the time. Can can you talk about why that that mixture, that bringing together, was something that stood out? Well, I think it's important to note that Williams, she insisted on never stepping into the cracks of sort of the, the hackneyed tropes around the expectations based on gender or race. She just wanted to be a great musician, and she was constantly pushing herself, uh, pushing the boundaries for herself as a musician. Uh, she was very much into Paul Hindemith and Igor Stravinsky and Arnold Schoenberg. 20th century composers really fascinated her and she wanted to find ways of, through the language that she had already built the foundation to, 
incorporate the music of some of these uh, 20th century European composers into her language. very beautiful uh and, and there are the horns and the strings like you know um and many of the songs on the original zodiac suite were improvised like did you improvise a lot also and what were you thinking of this particular arrangement that uh, i recorded uh most of it is very much written out i mean when you're dealing with uh you know, 20, 30 musicians, um, you know, there has to be some kind of roadmap, if you will. And so uh, all of this is very much orchestrated, but there are uh, certain instances where it does call impro for improvisation. Uh, Virgo is a great example of that. Uh, that is really the only, um, as we say, swinging movement in the entire suite. Those are all improvised solos within the structure of the piece itself. We actually have a section of Virgo from Mary Lou Williams' jazz trio version. Would you compare and contrast those two versions? What I would say is, if you listen, if you're able to listen to a few times of, to the both of them, you'll 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 hear a certain kind of uh, consistency with uh, the structure, with the form, and so I'm drawing from essentially the um, same language in when I'm playing that um, Williams is also drawing from uh, in in her recording. Uh, from the 40s. <laughs> it's, it's ultimately, what do you hope your project adds to the history and tradition of the Zodiac Suite? Well, uh, I think my ultimate goal is uh, hopefully to create more awareness for who Mary Lou Williams was and her significance. I just hope people gain some kind of curiosity uh, in, in what she uh, dedicated her life towards, which was music. I mean, she lived and breathed music. She lived through all of the eras of uh, what we, we call jazz, constantly modernizing herself, adapting herself. She, she was a titan artist and musician, and I, and I hope that people give her her credit and, and do. musician Aaron Deal talking about his new album with the Knights, The Zodiac Suite. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Aisha, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Have a great weekend. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown. 35 degrees in Boston in a minute and a half before 10 o'clock. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is coming up next. Start your week with 90.9 WBUR tomorrow. Congress gets back to work facing decisions on funding the government and aid to Ukraine. We'll preview their docket and priorities tomorrow morning on the radio and on the WBUR app. Listen when you wake up tomorrow. Snow mixed with rain this morning, changing over to all snow this afternoon. Temperatures will fall throughout the afternoon, down to around 25 degrees. It's 35 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. You might think you know the story of the rugby team that crashed in the Andes and resorted to cannibalism to survive. But in his latest film, director Juan Antonio Bayona wanted to show a different side of what happened. It's about love, about generosity in the most extreme way. The horror and the hope of survival in Society of the Snow, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.